The Dudes of Kung Fu podcast is brought to you by Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. In celebration of their newly launched WCI newsstand platform, Wing Chun Illustrated is giving listeners of the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast a free one-month all-access subscription. Go to wcinewsstand.com and click the register button in the upper right corner. Use voucher code FREE4U. That's F-R-E-E, the number four, and the letter U, all caps. Don't forget to activate your account by clicking the link in the welcome message. The Dudes of Kung Fu love Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. Hey all, we have a brand new exciting offer from Audible just for our awesome fans. Listen to the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast and go to www.audibletrial.com slash D-O-K-F and get a free 30-day free trial and one free audiobook. I use my audio account every day for my commute to and from work. I love listening to audiobooks and it really makes my commute so much better. Right now, I'm currently listening to Quitters Never Win by UFC champion Michael Bisping. This offer is available right now only for dudes of Kung Fu listeners. So remember, go to audibletrial.com slash D-O-K-F after the podcast and sign up today. There's no commitment and you have nothing to lose. Sign up today. Now let's get into the podcast. Dudes of Kung Fu. Please welcome your hosts, Alex Richter and Big Sean Madigan. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's podcast. How are you, Alex? What's going on? What's new and exciting? Doing good, man. Well, you know, it's kind of kind of always the same in the world of teaching Wing Chun. My, my life is pretty pretty similar week to week. Uh, just changes a little bit in terms of busyness. But what about you? You have a very uh, um, you have a lot of variety in your life, right? Variety in my life. Yeah, right, right. That's what you. That's the word that comes to mind when you think of me. I'm, I'm all over the place doing very different things. I wake up, eat, go to work, come home, eat, go to bed. That's. Yeah. Uh, well, it's not much different for me. My schedule is kind of the, kind of pretty much that as well. It's just what we do for work is different. Well, you know, I think it's an age thing. I think it's, you get you get to a certain point in your life where your primary function in life is to support and be there for your family. Right. And guys like of our ilk, yes, you know, go to work and support our families. I mean, you know, right. it's just what we do. it's what we do. Yes. You know, I yes. I work in an office. You work in a martial arts school. Own a martial arts school. But um, still, the premise is there that we get up and we go to work. That's what we do. That's what men. That's what. That's what my mother used to say. That's what men do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Hey, I got a. I got some feedback on on the last episode. People liked that. Uh. That when I talked about kind of the last nine months of Bruce Lee's life, I, I didn't really think people would be that into it. Well, you know what? A few things. I mean, you know, um, Bruce Lee is always interesting. It's just he's after all these years he's still interesting. He still has one of the most recognizable names in America. Um, probably if you ask, you know, if you ask people popular names, do you know this person? Do you know that person? It seems to be people that died young and lived hard seem to get remembered in this country. Like everybody still knows who Marilyn Monroe is, yes. Bruce Lee, Elvis Presley, Jim Morrison. Like these are people that just yeah. Absolutely. The names will live on forever, you know? Right, right. And, I mean, look at Black Belt Magazine, right? I mean, every time that they want to sell a lot of issues, they stick Bruce Lee on the cover. And I, don't think any, probably... I don't think anyone has been on the cover of that magazine more than Bruce Lee, um, which is pretty interesting because think, of, think about any other genre, maybe with the exception of music. But what other what other area do you, would would a dead person be on the cover of a magazine 40 years like still consistently 40 years after their death it's pretty it's pretty remarkable you know right i mean if you think like even if you brought like sports illustrated into the i'm sure every once in a while they'll throw a, you know an athlete that's passed away right you know onto the cover of their magazine and at some point 50 years from now you know i'm sure wayne gretzky will be on some hockey issue Right. You know, but, you know, for Bruce Lee, there's probably still beyond two covers a year. Yeah, at least. And it, yeah. it would be it would be every issue. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, it's you know. all, actually, now that I think about it, it's like, 
actually, I can't even tell you how many times was Elvis Presley on the cover of Rolling Stone since I've been alive. Probably they usually have kind of new stuff, you know what I mean? Or, or how many, uh, John Lennon or somebody like that, maybe a handful of times, but you can't even compare it, like, in, especially in the 80s. You know, when I look at my old Inside Kung Fu's or Black Belt magazines, it was like, at that time, it was almost every other month, like, Bruce was on the cover or it was something Bruce Lee related, you know, it was pretty, pretty remarkable. You know, it's interesting, it's like, it must be, it could be a niche thing also. Because I get, um some guitar magazines yeah and there's a you know i'm sure you know whose name is you're not gonna make fun of me like the like that map thing i just fucked up last week um <laughs> but you know like stevie ray vaughn's got to be on the cover one or two one or two issues a year and it's you know he's he's gone since the 80s you know right. or early 90s and um it must maybe it maybe just like within certain niches there's still this respect or this uh, admiration for the best of all time. Yeah. And in the martial arts, I mean, you know, on, in anybody's martial arts um, top five, Bruce Lee has the number one or two spot. Right. You know, it's just, you know, anybody's Mount Rushmore of martial artists, yeah. Bruce Lee's on there at some point in the, in the, in the creation of. Right, right, right. And, um, you know, I just think it's cool. So you talking about the stories uh, last week, I, I, I know I found it interesting. And, and I'm not a Bruce Lee fan. I mean, not that I'm, I shouldn't say that. I'm not a, I don't obsess about Bruce Lee, which I don't know why, but I just don't. Right. But, um, but I found this very interesting, you know. Right. Like even when we had Richard Torres on and he spoke about the history and things to that effect. Yeah. I, uh, I found that very interesting. I thought it was really, uh, and, and I think, you know. As you come across these st stories in your uh, in your in your journey through the collecting of stories and you being such a great <laughs> rock and tour <laughs> using them fancy words. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, that just because Alex said it right before the podcast started to me and uh, was going to explain it to me. I, I knew I knew I know the word obviously. I just, just a moron, don't know how to speak. But um, <laughs> You know, it's funny, since we had that uh, last podcast, I ordered, I don't know if you remember, in the 80s, there was a book called The Making of Enter the Dragon, and it was written by Robert Klaus, the director of Enter the yes, Dragon. Yes, I do remember that, yes. And I remember as a kid, like, I would see that book in the bookstore, but, like, he, he, as much of a Bruce Lee fan as I was in the 80s, I only cared about, like, his moves like so i would buy like the bruce bruce lee's fighting method or those kind of books i wasn't like that interested in filmmaking and the making of i wish i had picked up a copy back then because that book now which is been out of print for many years is worth a lot of money there were some people selling used copies for a thousand dollars on amazon i was like whoa really? yeah and the funny thing is i i'm like and the moment i see that it's kind of like my gusang dummy I need to find a way to get it and not pay that much money. <laughs> All right. So I actually found some Rube on Amazon who was selling a used one for like 60 bucks, and I just snatched it up right away. And I, I read the book in about two hours. Right. <laughs> and, um, and it's funny because a lot of the topics that I talked about on, on the last podcast, uh, you know, kind of the last nine months of Bruce Lee's life, which was somewhat turbulent, obviously entered the shooting of Enter the Dragon happened in that time period. And there were a lot of parallels to um, the things that we were talking about. What was super interesting is uh, Warner Brothers, uh, which produced uh, Enter the Dragon, was still not totally 100 percent convinced that Bruce Lee, a Chinese guy, would be able to carry a film in America. And so this was a big chance for him. But even Warner Brothers was still like. They weren't 100%. So what they did was they they told the producers, you can make the movie, but you have to do it on the budget of like a high-end TV show and not a movie. And mm. it has to be non-union. So that actually is explains a lot why Enter the Dragon kind of is the way it is. Enter the Dragon was shot on a budget of $850,000. Which right. uh, for 1973 was for a big Hollywood movie was still a little on the low end. But with that shitty budget, they couldn't bring anybody over from the States. They had to hire local. And that's why you had all Chinese extras and you had um, Chinese production assistants and stuff like that. 
it, it, it's really kind of interesting uh, considering that became one of the most profitable films Warner Brothers ever made. By the end of 73, with worldwide release and everything, um, Enter the Dragon made about $90 million. <laughs> uh, that's just staggeringly amazing. And, 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 but not shocking, you know? And because it was non-union, no one got residuals on Enter the Dragon. So yeah, that's a shock. Angela Mao, who plays Bruce Lee's sister, got a hundred bucks for a two-day shoot, and that was all the money she ever saw from that movie. Wow, <laughs> which is like amazing. That's crazy. Right? Yeah, and, 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 and you so, know, it just yeah. that falls in line with everything that Hollywood did back then. I mean, yeah, I know, I know, you're probably too young to have been a huge fan of them, but um, the old Abbott and Costello movies, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I grew up watching them on TV on Sundays. And if you watch the old ones, they all had the Andrew sisters in them because Universal didn't think anybody would want to go see comedians. Interesting. So they made sure that they had the Andrew sisters in in the first three or four movies so people would want to go see the Andrew sisters and would sit through the movie to watch the Andrew sisters. Wow. And it, it became part of the contract. They had to have the Andrew sisters in their movie, in certain movies, just to, to, to help with the draw until they could prove that they could draw on their own. Unbelievable. Yeah. I, I want to ask you about that book because I, I, I never read it, but I heard a story that there was a, uh, a contention between Klaus and Lee in the name of one of the characters that Bruce Lee had a problem saying the word Braithwaite. Okay, so actually, actually that that brings up kind of funny story. I don't know. I might have talked about it a little bit last week, but the original scriptwriter for Enter the Dragon was a guy named Michael Allen, who later went on to do Flash Gordon. Um, but okay. at the, but at the time that he wrote Enter the Dragon, um, he was kind of a young budding screenwriter, and he didn't have a lot of credits, and he was kind of like a young kid with this big Hollywood dream. So he wrote this script. It was it was originally uh, Enter the Dragon was originally called Blood and Steel, and so they presented Bruce Lee with the script. And Bruce, for him, he was like, for him, he was really concerned that um, the the script portrayed Chinese kung fu uh, respectfully and accurately. You know, because what the hell does a Hollywood scriptwriter know about what real kung fu is, right? So, right, you know, sure. things like the finger pointing away to the moon and like, you know, the philosophical bits that come in the movie, that was all those were all Bruce Lee's ideas that he added in there. That wasn't in the original script, right? Right. But anyway, this guy Michael Allen, uh he writes the script, he comes to Hong Kong and Bruce Lee wants to meet the scriptwriter so that he can give him his two cents about the script, right? And so apparently this scriptwriter because he was young he was kind of cocky and he was kind of smart alecky to Bruce Lee. Now you have to imagine like Bruce Lee about the time he's going to shoot Enter the Dragon, he is the bona fide biggest star in Asia, okay? Right. He is like he is the man. And now some young kind of wannabe hotshot Hollywood scriptwriter is kind of Bruce has some suggestions and he's kind of almost I mean, it wasn't clear from the book exactly what it was. They said he was being smart alecky, which is like, I can't yeah. imagine someone being smart alecky to a 32-year-old Bruce Lee at the height of everything, right? Right, so right, sure. Bruce lost his shit and went immediately, I think, to Fred Weintraub, who's one of the producers, like, you got to fire this guy. I want this guy out of Hong Kong right away. I, I want to take care of all the you know, additional script changes and yada, yada, yada. Well, I guess Fred Weintraub, uh, it was either him or one of the other producers, said, okay, we're firing him. We're sending him on the next plane back to the States, right? But the gag was the, 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 the budget for Enter the Dragon was so low, they couldn't pay Michael Allen really to write the script. So what they did is they gave him a two-week trip to Hong Kong for him and like his family or something like that. So that was actually his payment was a vacation to Hong Kong where he's kind of working half the time. Right. Wow. So a a day or two into his trip, Bruce Lee is like, you're fired. Get out of here. And so (laughs) the producer was like, "Okay, Bruce, we're firing him. We're sending him on the next plane back. But 
Michael Allen still had another week or two left in his trip to Hong Kong. So they told Michael Allen to go to another hotel and to like lay low and just like, you know, when his trip is done, you go back to the States, right? Right. So a couple days later, Bruce is doing an interview in Tim Sa Choi, which is by the pier with the Hong Kong press. And he tells the Hong Kong press that he was very unhappy with the American scriptwriter, and he had that guy fired and that guy was on the next plane back to America. And I can imagine in hindsight, the reason why that was a big deal for Bruce to see, because it might sound like boasting, like for him to talk that way. But mm -hmm. you have to imagine no Chinese actor had ever made it in Hollywood. So Bruce wanted to, in a certain way, show the Chinese audience that he was powerful enough to fire a white guy from Hollywood. You know what I mean? And so well, he's kind also, of... But, but also, let's make no mistake about it. Bruce had a fucking ego. Yes, for sure. For Bruce, sure. Bruce loved to build... <clears throat> Bruce was definitely one of those guys that liked to build himself up. Yes. So he, he tells this to the press or whatever, right? After that press conference, he decides to... Uh, take the ferry across the harbor. So I don't know if you know how Hong Kong is structured. Uh, Hong Kong Islands, which is where all the big skyscrapers are, that's a little bit like Manhattan. And then mm -hmm. like Kowloon is kind of like Queens and Brooklyn. It's kind of like the boroughs, right? Okay. And uh, I believe by 73, they already had the cross harbor tunnel where you could drive in the tunnel. But most people actually took the ferry across um, because and you could still take the ferry across. But most people do it now for the for the views of Hong Kong rather than out of necessity, because you can take the subway or you can take right. a bus through the tunnel. Right. Um, but it's only like a f even today, it's only a few cents to take the ferry. It's really amazing. And the view right. and especially when you go at nighttime, the views of. Hong Kong Island and, and Kowloon are just really unbelievable. So Bruce decides he wants to go to the, the island side because there's a big uh, billboard with him on it over there that he wants to see firsthand. Somebody told him or something, right? Right. And I think at that time there was a ferry that crossed Hong Kong Harbor like every four minutes in each direction. So every four minutes to Hong Kong and then from Hong Kong to Kowloon every four minutes. So their ferry's just going, you know, one right after right. the other, right? And so Bruce gets on the ferry and Michael Allen is on the same ferry, <laughs> all right? Uh, Matthew Pauly, the author of the Bruce Lee book, talks about this, but it's also in the making of Enter the Dragon book. And, of course, according to what the producers told Bruce, that guy was already way back. He was already back in the States. Right, and right, Bruce right. Bruce Lee, of all the fairies, he's on the same ferry as Bruce Lee. Of all the gin joints in the world. Yeah, can you imagine, right? And Bruce lost his shit and was so angry and then got really upset with the producers and then had a very contentious relationship with the producers since that. But Robert Klaus, the director, apparently Bruce got along very well with him. But he had a little bit of suspicion towards Raymond Chow, who was a co-producer, and I think maybe to Fred Weintraub. Um, but okay. they, had, they still had Michael Allen, I think, do some polishing of the script. But I don't think Michael Allen, and I could be wrong. I'm sure there's somebody out there who will correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think Michael Allen is actually credited in the film. Um, he might be credited now in IMDb like they put him right, afterwards, right. like original screenplay. by. But I don't think he's actually in the credits. But I, I could totally be wrong. In, right, in fact, right. it's very possible I'm wrong on that. But anyway... Um, because when Enter the Dragon came out, Bruce Lee was dead, so they might have thrown him back on there anyway. Right. <laughs> so, um, but apparently, Michael, based on this kind of weird experience, decided that he would put as many R's as he could into Bruce Lee's dialogue. Oh, wow. So, so that's actually where that story comes from, and that's the reason why the British guy who, who contracts Bruce to do the mission, his name is Mr. Braithwaite. Right. You know, hello, Mr. Braithwaite. Right, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> yeah, so so apparently that was Michael Allen kind of getting back at Bruce Lee. Um, so, and, and see, these are the stories I find interesting because, you know, you enjoy the film, you watch it, you know about it. And when you hear, like, the behind-the-scenes drama that went on, it's really, it's really crazy. Yeah, I had heard the story originally, and, you know, who knows even who I heard it from. I, you know, It's like one of those things like you kind of know your whole life, but you don't know where you know it from. Right. And, and I, had, in my head, had heard the story that Bruce uh, didn't get along with Robert Klaus for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, Klaus really couldn't do anything to Bruce on a physical level, obviously. Right. He couldn't fire him because he was the star of the show, but he could needle him. Mm -hmm. And the way he was able to needle him was that he knew that Brucey would have a problem saying the word Braithwaite. Not only that, Brucey went and complained to him and said, I have a problem saying that name. Change it to almost anything else. Right, right. And he wouldn't. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, so I don't know. I mean, obviously, the book is written oh, yeah. by Robert Klaus. I, I don't think that Bruce had an issue with Robert Klaus. Of course, I could be wrong. Um, I think his issue was with the other guys. What's interesting about the extras because they hired all local because the, you know they had no budget and they sure, pay, right. and they paid those guys dick for what they did. So right. uh, apparently, uh, you know the the prostitutes that were there, like when they came into like uh, William's room and and Roper. Right. And all yeah. That, right? Yeah. 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 So. Apparently, because actresses in Hong Kong did not want to play prostitutes and extras would not be hired to play prostitutes because they considered it kind of a bad omen, like Chinese can be a bit superstitious about that. So they hired actual prostitutes. So in those scenes with like when they come in, those are all actual prostitutes. And they required that the uh, film pay them what they would actually have earned had they worked as the prostitute. So, so they got more money than some they, of the so They got more money than the extras in the white karate geese who were fighting. So those guys were getting, I think, something like $100 for the whole week. And the prostitutes were getting 150 per day. So, like, so the extras were really salty about that, as you can imagine, right? Take and, that as a lesson, kids. That's you can right. Become an actor, an actor or a hooker. <laughs> Go and, for the hooker. <laughs> and, and so, and it's interesting after reading that book. I mean, I've seen Enter the. I can't count how many times I've seen Enter the Dragon, um, but uh, now I want to see it again, having read like the making of because all the extras in the white suits, like the the karate guys, they hired most of them. Uh, they're mostly street kids, and, and they're mostly triads actually, um, mm. and. Um, they got most of them from one triad group, but the problem is they didn't have enough of them, so they had to hire more, which happened to come from another triad group. Mm. So apparently there were two rival gangs all dressed up as extras on the same film. And what so, could go wrong? Exactly. So, you know, in those long shots in Enter the Dragon where you see everybody on the field fighting each other, right? Um, so apparently there were some actual fights going on during those like melees between rival gangs. And when they would call cut, those dudes would still be fighting. So uh, <laughs> so apparently if you go back and watch that, and I'll have to go see it. You can actually see some pockets where some dudes are really kicking the shit out of each other. And so, uh, yeah. And then, of course, the story, uh, which I've mentioned before, you know, some of those those triads had. um you know, challenge Bruce and, and, and so on. So, uh, you know, it was kind of a very, very wild set. And, um, you know, I, I wish that there, there was a um, there was somebody on the set who was documenting the whole thing. And he shot hours and hours, I think like 9000 feet or whatever, a film. I don't forget how they calculated it and had made a trailer and he had a bunch of behind the scenes stuff. And the trailer was made. Um, but it was all behind the scenes and it was shown once in New York and then it was all the film was destroyed. But there was at one point like a huge reel of all the behind the scenes stuff, which supposedly even included some of the fights Bruce Lee had with extras. And all of that was unfortunately destroyed, um, which would have been wow. just great to see all that stuff. Yeah, it's like, you know, when, when you're into these, you know, in the, the pre digital age, it's so heartbreaking how much stuff got lost, you know? Oh, it's I'm like, sure. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, Alex, we didn't, um, we had talked about this once before, but I want to do it now while I remember. Mm-hmm. We want to give a shout out to Tofa Maori. Yes. Maori. I'm, because he's just like, the, the dudes of all Kung Fu fan, dudes of all Kung Fu fan. He's the this super dude, fan of dudes of Kung Fu. He really is. It's like, and Topher, dude, man, we really appreciate all you do for the podcast. You're not only a, a Patreon supporter. Man, whenever the new episodes come out, you share it around like crazy. And we just want you to know that we appreciate what you're doing for us, man. We really do. Yeah, it's that's awesome. Some, he's also like, some, he's also one of like the first five people to order any book or anything that I come out with, right. too, which is really awesome. Yeah, definitely appreciate that, Topher. You know, it's funny. And before we get on to um, 
Before we get on to our main topic, and it was inspired by Tolfer a little bit, let's give a quick listen to this. Hey all, have you heard that John Crucione of Laughing Dragon Wing Chun has an app exclusively for iPad about the science behind Dim Mach as it applies to Wing Chun? Dim Mach is the art of hitting weak spots or sensitive spots on the human body. Dim Mach, as taught by John Crucione, is considered one of the highest forms of Kung Fu target practice. He explains it in a clear scientific and anatomical principles and not just mystical theory or kung fu movie entertainment like the five point palm exploding heart technique nonsense. The art teaches you how to apply the principles of real dim mock within your system of Wing Chun. This app is unique because it breaks down two different lineages of the wooden dummy form and teaches the most common dim mock techniques of the dummy form and how to make it work. Contained within the app are videos, photos, theory, and points which are must-have for any Wing Chun practitioner who wants to elevate their skill to a higher level. And version 2.0 of the app is on its way out. It's available in the iTunes store for iPad only. And folks, it's just such a cool thing to have, you know, an old science of Dimmock brought together with the new science of an iPad. This is a, I've seen the app, it's fantastic, and it really is a must-have for, for Wing Chun Kung Fu practitioners. I hope you all enjoy. And we're back. So uh, the main topic for, for tonight is um, how, for us Kung Fu people, we need to be able to recognize that someone can have different choreography from us, but still have good... Kung Fu. Right. You know, it's, um, so what happened was this week I, I saw Topher post a video of him doing the first few sets of the Jong set, the Jong form. And I was like, wow, that was really good. And it wasn't until like the second time I watched it, maybe second or third time, I realized that there was a one or two small parts in there that his choreography was a little different than mine. And I would just, but the Kung Fu looked awesome. His timing, his, his self, his self, like the self-timing, like where his, like, you know, his feet and his relation to his hands and his trunk, everything was moving, choreographed nice, and the timing was perfect, and I was just really impressed with it. And I was glad that all the feedback that he got on the uh, video was positive. But then I saw another post in one of the Wing Chun groups that I belong to, that someone had posted a, a, a jong form, and his jong form, again, looked really good. It was really different than the one I do. Not so much like Tofa's is just slightly different. The one that this, this gentleman posted was fundamentally different. But clearly, the Wing Chun in the form was excellent. I was like really, really impressed by the Wing Chun in the form. I, I was looking at it, and I was saying to myself, like, wow, this dude looks like he has power. This dude looks structurally sound. He just looked good all around. And he looked like he, he didn't look like he was just making it up as he went along. And every comment, I shouldn't say every comment, 85% of the comments underneath this guy's video was that his choreography was wrong. <laughs> and I, I don't know why... Kung Fu people obsess about choreography the way they do. It's just it's just silliness. Now I can say I can see if you want to put constructive criticism as to someone's footwork, your balance, that's all fine and well. But to sit there and say, "Wow, your Kung Fu looked good, but you don't know what you're doing," or your your Shifu taught you crap. Clearly, your Shifu didn't teach you crap. Mm -hmm. This dude had good Kung Fu, and I don't know what the obsession is with people just looking slightly different or looking right. fundamentally different and people having to like point it out when the kung fu is still good mm -hmm. it's still wing chun it's just done differently right so that's a that's a huge huge can of worms for, for wing chun people um i i think to your first point like why do kung fu people or wing chun people obsess about choreography and i think quite frankly because 
that's their main basis of comparison with each other. When when you look at, you know, boxing or Brazilian jiu-jitsu or anything else, you have a very clear, straightforward way to compare yourself to someone else. You know, you right. jiu-jitsu, you, you know, you, you, you slap hands, fist bump, and then you go and you grapple. Uh, in boxing, you can box. And in obviously in the better Wing Chun schools or whatever, there's some kind of sparring or, or whatever, right? But most Wing Chun people live in this world where it's like um, – their main mode of comparison is the angle of the Tansao in Tsunam Tao, the angle of this move in the wooden dummy form. And they end up blowing these things up to such a great degree. And look, I'm a very technical instructor. I definitely believe that there are right ways and wrong ways to do things um, conceptually, not necessarily from a technical standpoint. Um, but there are people who think that that is like, that if you do the Tansao a little bit differently or you do the Gansao a little differently, it automatically means it's wrong because it's not the way they learned it. And these are usually people who have only had exposure to their own Sifu's way of doing things, which many people have, but some Sifu's have a very open way of showing <laughs> things. Most mm -hmm. people don't. They say, look, this is the only way it's done and everyone else who does it this way is doing it totally wrong. Um, I think part of it is Yip Man... Grandmaster Yipman did not teach the advanced technique to all of his students, partially because some people just quit before they learn the whole thing. Like, oh, that guy didn't get to learn the wooden dummy. They make it seem like a diss. Maybe somebody didn't learn the wooden dummy because they quit or they got a job or they had a kid. Right. Right. Um, and and the fact that this person learned the wooden dummy and that person learned the wooden dummy does not necessarily guarantee that the old man taught them the same thing. But there's this. There's this idea that if you are one of the select few that got to learn whatever advanced program, Buji, wooden dummy, pole, knife, whatever, that then you're in a club of people who are doing everything exactly the same. That's the mistake um, because that does that's that has never been the case in the history of Wing Chun. That's certainly not been the case in, in Grandmaster Yip Man's teaching tenure, but that's the expectation. So a slight variation in Tanso means you're wrong because it's not the way I did it. And my Sivu tells me this is the right way, and my Sivu's a swell guy. So that that's basically the whole thing right there. That's basically why these people obsess about this stuff, because they think they have revealed knowledge that other people don't have. And that's the mistake that they make. Well, you just think as an adult they can recognize that maybe people could be doing something differently and still be correct. Right. You know, like I have... I. You know, we've said on the podcast before, Alex and I really don't, our relationship as friends, we really don't talk about Kung Fu that much. Right. Um, so I've seen um, his lineage's forms. I've never seen Alex do them. I, I, you know, I hear he's pretty good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, so, but like, I remember, like, I remember years ago when I knew a version of Wing Chun that, I was doing, and I had first saw Lung Ting's that big book that um, Wing Chun Kun, Wing Chun Kun that, yeah. that that the yellow book, I, the yellow book. It's right. this gigantic Wing Chun book that's right. just incre it's incredibly awesome. Right. And I remember seeing the book and saying, "Wow, there's some differences than how I do it." Mm -hmm. And I probably, I mean, I don't know exactly when the book came out, but. I, I want to say I was at the ripe old age of 15. Yeah, it came and, out, the first edition came out in 76, I think. Okay, so yeah. that sounds about right. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I remember saying like, oh, that's different. But it looked good. Right. Like, you know, and I, so I, I remember even back then thinking, oh, so I wonder if people can be doing stuff differently and still be right. I wonder why that is. Right. Like, you know, and like I was a kid. And these are supposedly, you know, grown men and women who cannot accept the fact that someone does something a little bit differently. Yes. You know, and still and still be fundamentally correct. Right. Like now, granted, there are people out there doing some Wing Chun, and they're doing it differently, and they are not correct. Yes. And you can say they're not correct because what they're doing goes against Wing Chun. You know what I mean? They're yes. chasing hands. They're giving up their center line like they're doing all the shit in the name of oh no we're just expressing ourselves differently no what you're doing is not wing chun right but you know but if they're doing wing chun then you got to let go of the choreography you know it's right. just like i had a guy who trained with me in jkd 
uh, many years ago. And I, had, I remember showing him what I was doing on the, the Jong at the time. And I did something and I saw like his eyes like just like light up for a second. Mm-hmm. And I just said, oh, you know, what's wrong? Did I do something wrong? And I'll never forget it. He went, no, 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 not wrong. Just, just different than what I do. But that's definitely Wing Chun. Right. He goes, and I was like, oh, but if it's wrong, he goes, no, no, it's not wrong. It's just, it's different. But that was definitely Wing Chun. Right. And I, and I remember thinking like, oh, that's cool. I like, like in my, in my head thinking like, I like that attitude. Yes. And yes, I, yes. I got to make sure that I self-check that. And I just think that we as martial artists, as, as Kung Fu men, as JKD men, have to start realizing that as a group, we can accept other versions of ourselves right. and not look down on upon it, you yeah, know? Yeah. And, you know, it's like, and, and I really, I, I hate saying this because the Wing Chun needs, it needs some sort of self-governing system in it like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and boxing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, that, and, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's why sports fighting is the healthiest fighting in the fucking world right. when it comes to, you know, mentally healthy. You know, unless unless you train at a school that allows sparring and has a healthy open environment, the sport fighting is just healthier. Right. And when I say healthier, I don't mean cardiovascular. I mean, you know, mentally. Like, we were just chatting before we went on the air about um, what was going on in your school over the last couple of days. Yeah. Right? And you had said that... T- t- Today was kind of like a part of the promotion ceremony, like a testing ceremony. Yeah, exam for our high levels, yeah. And there was some fighting, sparring, whatever, things mm-hmm. to that effect. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's so healthy. Not to see which student can beat up which student. Right. Just that people can move in that kind of environment and... And kind of test themselves and see where they're at. And people can see what we need to work on as a system, as a Kung Fu family, as an individual fighter. Right. And that's what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has. Where two guys, you've said it better than I could. But it's like in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, two guys get on the mat and bump yeah. fists, slap hands, and roll around and put to test what they want to work on. You right. know, and, you know and, and it's not so much... I've noticed in the, the little bit of time that I spent with um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was that when, if I was working with you, me and you were rolling around, let's say we were about the same weight, mm-hmm. and we were rolling around in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and I couldn't get some sweep you know, from the guard on you, but you were sweeping me left and right with it, mm-hmm. I wouldn't sit there like JKD people and say, oh, well, the sweep doesn't work for me. I'm going to do something different. Right. In Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, they would never say that. They would say, well, let's work on your timing. Yeah. Let's work, you know, they would, why isn't it working for you? Develop a drill that works on that and, and, and work on it progressively until you could get it done. Yes. And in JKD, I'm not, I can't speak for Wing Chun, but in JKD, there's this idea of something, if I can't make it work within 10 minutes of learning it, well, <laughs> I, have to th- I have to throw it out and, 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 and say, well, that just doesn't work for me. That won't be in my kung fu. Right. right. I, I, I remember, um, I, I won't say the, the instructor's name unless I have another beer. But um, <laughs> there was a, a friend of mine was saying that the, they don't do the straight blast, what we call in JKD the straight blast. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, chain punching. Punch, chain punching. Yeah. They, they, in his lineage in JKD, they don't do chain punching, they don't do straight blast. And I was like, oh, why not? And he said, well, I'm going to be seeing my teacher's teacher uh, this weekend at a seminar. I'm going to ask. So he calls me up after the seminar that Saturday. And he goes, oh, I got to tell you. He goes, man, I made an ass of myself tonight. I said, oh, what happened? He said, oh, I, I had said to Sifu so-and-so, well, why don't we do straight blast? And he called me up in front of the whole seminar and said, here, straight blast me. So I tried to straight blast him, and he punched the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, so you don't do straight blast in your lineage because you, who are untrained in straight blast, tried to pull off a straight blast 
against a guy who knew you were going to straight blast and was one of Bruce Lee's students and doing martial arts for 40 years. Right. So do you not use a fucking gun too? Because you wouldn't be able to do that either. It's like right. you wouldn't be able to pull off any tool. Right. In, in that situation. Oh, right. you've never been trained in wrestling. So I want you to, here's how you do this, this penetration step for a single leg. Right. We want you to try and take down this guy who's been training in that system for 40 years. Oh, wait, you can't do it? Well, let's throw that out. Right, right. It's, it's the dumbest reasoning in the fucking world. Well, I mean, like, did you ever see a boxer lose a boxing match and then say, blame boxing? <laughs> right, exactly right. <laughs> right. Oh, no, I need to incorporate more systems into my boxing. Exactly, right? But, yeah, people, especially, you know, traditional martial artists who don't train with that same level of intensity as a professional martial artist are so quick to blame the style, which they, 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 they don't even train half as hard as somebody who does something like boxing, right? right. And just does boxing and doesn't do all the other cool stuff. And but they immediately, you know, oh, this doesn't work or whatever. And they never like Bruce Lee talked about, try to find the source of their ignorance. They'll just be ignorant on something and be cool with it and say they can't do it and do something else. And they never really go deep into it. Um, I think like, well, it's funny coming back to kind of the whole choreography issue. I mean, obviously, Wing Chun is a style that's uh, based on ideas, concepts, principles, right? And how well you can apply these principles in fighting, uh, uh, I think, determines how good you are at Wing Chun. Whether you do a Tan Sao a certain way or a Pak Sao a certain way, I think these things are kind of tertiary or secondary to how well you can apply the overall tactics and strategy of Wing Chun against somebody who's trying to attack you. And so that's where you can see if you are applying the strategy and tactics of Wing Chun with good Wing Chun structure, that's kind of what we're looking for. You can do it and you have good structure while you're doing it. Um, we can discuss the details, you know, and get in the weeds about the Tan Sao and the angle of the pinky finger and blah, blah, blah. But I think that if, if the core concepts and principles are adhered to with good structure, then we're talking about good Wing Chun. And I always find it strange that Wing Chun people, even the really conservative ones that claim that they're doing the most authentic version of Yip Man's art, they will tell you that ultimately Wing Chun is about adapting according to what your opponent does, right? Because if you're not adapting to your opponent, then you're going to get knocked out. So they'll talk about Chi Sao allows us to feel and adapt to what our opponent does. So I always find it weird that certain strains of Yip Man's Wing Chun will kind of talk out of both sides of their mouth with like Wing Chun is applicable in many situations and adapts according to the opponent you have to do it exactly in this way in order for it to be wing chun and and i i find that like do they not have like some cognitive dissonance going in their head with having these two competing ideas which are not compatible with each other kind of beaten on uh, uh, you know beaten on each other in their head wing chun is adaptable we can defend kicks punches any kind of attack because we move according to our opponent cuz we have these awesome chi sao reflexes you cannot put your foot in this position on the form because that is totally wrong right. so so, so uh, um and 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 kind of to come back to a perennial topic for me, which is uh, uh, Sifu Chan Chi Man in Hong Kong, he told me on my last trip, one of, you know, it's like the more time I spend with him, the, the more I realize how kind of, how much it makes sense that most of Yip Man's students do something differently. Because first of all, and I mentioned this before, but it bears repeating because those really conservative Wing Chun people that think they're doing super duper authentic Yip Man Wing Chun, they really... They, they don't even have their facts right. Yip Man was born in 1893. He started learning Wing Chun when he was around 11 years old from Chan Ma Shun, who passed away only a few short years after he started learning. And he mostly learned from his Sihangs. That means the amount of time Yip Man actually learned from his Sifu is very small. And we're talking about what he learned from his Sifu at age 11, 12, 13. Which is kind of like, um, remember you at 11, 12, 13, okay? Oh, and yeah, it, right, exactly. And, and, and so, like, people kind of really overestimate what Yip Man's Sifu Todai relationship was with his own Sifu. Then, supposedly, whether you believe the story or not, the story about Leung Bik, where, which was his secondary teacher, um, that happened in Hong Kong when he was around 20. So, we're talking, you have to imagine when you do the math, when Yip Man was 20, that was the year 1913. 
Okay? Right. Okay. Yip Man came to Hong Kong when the communists took over China in 1949. So when you listen to Yip Man's story, Yip Man more or less finished learning Wing Chun around the year 1913, 1914. And he did not start teaching Wing Chun professionally until 1949. Now, oh. just now, just for perspective, it's 2019 right now, but you can remember 2014. Imagine you finish learning Wing Chun in 2014, but you will not teach it until 2049. <laughs> All right, like right. like sometimes people don't really do the math. When you put it in real terms, you look at it and you go, oh. That kind of changes things. And Yip Man, yes, he taught Kwok Fu and Lun Kai and those guys in China, but that was mostly just for keeping up his skills. In those years from 1913 to 1949, he practiced Wing Chun. He taught it somewhat informally, and he maintained his skills. But he, by 1949, really had no need for the formalized sets anymore. They had already long since done their job in terms of the skill. All right, because if you're 80 years old, yes, you can still do the Sunum Tao form and uncover, you know, hitherto unknown secrets or whatever. But honestly, if 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 you didn't get it after 40 years of training the Sunum Tao form, I, I I think it's time to pick up crocheting. All right. Right. So um, so Yip Man was forced for financial reasons to start teaching in 1949. At the ripe old age of 56, when he had never taught Wing Chun really formally in his entire life. So he did not really have a set teaching program. Of course, we all know the order is Siunam Tao, Chum Ki Bi, whatever, right? But in terms of when do you teach Lapta? How do you teach Pakta? When do you teach this step? When do you teach the turning? What is the, on the day to day, what is a teaching progression in a professional martial arts school that teaches Wing Chun? That had never been done before. Yip Man had to create it. And he did a lot of trial and error. And admittedly, most of his senior students will tell you that he changed stuff as he found a slightly better way of doing it. And also as he remembered stuff. So Chan Chi Man told me the craziest story. All right. Now, Chan Chi Man, uh, as I mentioned multiple times on the podcast, is literally the eldest living senior student of Yip Man in Hong Kong today. He's one of the very few handful of students to learn all the way through the Bacham Do from Grandmaster Yip Man. So he is a fully qualified Wing Chun instructor, right? And he's still alive. He's 83 years old. You can still meet him in Hong Kong. He told me that when he learned the wooden dummy from Yip Man in the early years, they still did not have a wooden dummy yet because it had not been manufactured. So they had to learn what they called the uh, uh, I think it was Lat Sao Chong or Ta Lat Sao Chong, which is the air dummy, sometimes called Hong Chong. So he had to learn the wooden dummy in the air. And then eventually right. when he got the wooden dummy, you know, he had the chance to do it and Grandmaster Yip Man corrected him and showed him. But he said Grandmaster Yip Man showed him to do everything going to the right side first. Now, anyone who's learned the wooden dummy knows that you move towards the left side of the wooden dummy first. Uh, at least left side as you face it, right? And then you go to the right side, usually. That's how most people do it. But he learned to do it to the right side first because Yip Man did not really remember the form anymore. He knew all the techniques. He had internalized it, and he was trying to kind of put it together for them in some kind of workable routine. He said after he had done it, I don't know, at some point later, could have been a short time later, long time later, I have to go back and watch the video, he said he performed the wooden dummy in front of Yip Man. And Yip Man went up to him and said, Ah, uh, 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 Chen Chi Man, uh, you should go to the left side, not the right side. I, I showed you wrong. <laughs> and then that was it. And that was the correction. Right. So right, it was right. like, oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, you should go to the left side first. And, of course, you know that if you go to one side, there, there's still some adjustments you have to make. So do you finish with the high palm or the low palm? Or how does that right, do you right, go on this sure, side? That's right. side. But it was like, no, 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 you do it that way. And think about it. This is somebody who was very close to Yip Man, a private student, a qualified student. And he was just like, ah, just do it on the other side. But now in right. 2019, you have people who did not even breathe in the same time Yip Man was alive, telling you exactly what his form was. And this right. is a massive form of arrogance and ignorance to how Yip Man taught. And look, even if you're 100% sure, okay, so 
I mentioned before, I have seen the Tang Sang footage of Yip Man's wooden dummy form, which is not the video that everyone's seen on YouTube. It was shot five years earlier in San Pokong. So he does the 116 dummy techniques, which is similar to what Leung Ting and the other people towards the last period did. He does, in essence, the same exact form that I learned from Leung Ting, like movement to movement. So some idiot like me could tell everyone else, hey, your form is wrong because I saw Yip Man's 1967 footage and he did 116 dummy techniques with these eight kicks and this blah, 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 doing the Popeye only on the one side with the cross Popeye at the end. And, da, 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 da. and I still cannot say that because even though I've with my own eyes seen Yip Man do the same form that my Chinese teacher taught me, I would never once say that that is that is the only way to do the form. Because it's not. It's just how it was taught at that time. Right. And so for anyone else who has not seen the Tang Sang footage of Yip Man doing it, to claim otherwise is ridiculous. I've seen it and I would never claim it. It's really nonsense. It's absolute rubbish. And when you have people like Chen Chi Man telling you that Yip Man just casually said, ah, do it on the other side. Or David Peterson recounted that story, how when they first got the wooden dummy, um, you know, Wong Sun Leung and the senior students went across the street because they had never seen Yip Man do the wooden dummy form before. So they went to like a restaurant or they went to some place that was the on the same floor as Yip Man's school. And they were across the street so they can look in the window. And what did they see when Yip Man had the dummy in front of him? He was doing the form, stopping, putting his hand on his head, scratching his head and going, hmm, oh, no, wait, maybe I should go on this side. Uh, yeah. Does it go like this? Does it go like this? Why? Because he, had, he was undoubtedly a very highly skilled master of Wing Chun. But the form is not Wing Chun. The form is a teaching program to learn Wing Chun. Right. There are plenty of people who do forms and don't know anything about Wing Chun. And they might even do the right form and still not understand a damn thing about how Wing Chun works. And there is the old man himself kind of figuring it out and how is he gonna teach it? Maybe you should go to this side, maybe you should go to this side. And we're talking about the Grandmaster. And now there's some idiot on Facebook sitting on a couch saying that a choreography on the, someone's form is wrong. This is absolute garbage this is not even defensible if you know any or defendable i should say if you know anything about the history of yip man and the style of wing chun this is total nonsense and it and the truth of the matter is that we're picking on wing chun a little bit here but it's not just wing chun you know i remember years ago having the same kind of argument with a an, a scream akali guy who after telling me for an hour that the stick that he was swinging could represent a knife. It could represent a baseball bat. It could represent a stickball bat, a broomstick. It could represent a rolled up newspaper if it had to be. Right. But it had to be 28 inches long when you bought it from him. Training <laughs> his school. It had to be 28 inches long, made out of this. Like, it had to be of a certain weight. It had to be like, you know what I mean? Like, it had to be 28 inches long. That's funny. You know, like, and it just, the absurdity of it was just ridiculous. It's just, yeah. and, I, and I remember like sitting there, sitting there saying, but don't you, want, never mind, forget about it. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just not worth arguing. You, with you, you know, like, um, maybe one last point on this topic. Um, you had mentioned that you had somebody who watched you do something and said, oh, that's different from how I do it, but that's definitely Wing Chun, right? Um, right. People with that kind of attitude who can see like patterns or concepts in martial arts and go like, hmm, that guy's really good. That guy might be doing something different, but I can see certain things they're doing that I understand it, even if it's packaged a little bit differently. In my opinion, that those are the people who actually have kind of broken through a wall in martial arts, past the kind of facade of the individual style. And have actually, right. they, they can actually see it from a more technical and, and martial perspective. One of the, and, and you actually find this very rarely in traditional Chinese martial arts, but our good friends, uh, Sean, uh, Mak Sifu, right. he, is, he is one of the rare traditional Chinese martial artists 
who, in my opinion, he has absolutely broken through that. Many years ago, he was showing me the original Lokdin Bunguan from the Hongkun style, so I could compare it to the Wing Chun one. And he taught me, like, in detail, like, about how the backhand has to move first and how they do it this way and they use rotation and all this kind of stuff. And then he says, look, if someone is a pole master, then and then he goes on to tell me, like, a couple little attributes that I can look at. And he goes, and he told me, it doesn't matter the style. If they have these points, they know how to use the pole regardless right. of style and then he said and he shows me how it and of course maxifu is an absolute wizard yeah. with the pole right and then he shows me somebody from his own style doing the pole and that guy is not doing it with those characteristics and he says see this guy he's doing the form but he's missing these kind of core elements that would make it function right and right. then he pulls up and he's doing all this on his phone so he kind of like He's not trying to like make someone in his, you know, yeah. uh, uh, look bad, but he's going, look at this guy. This guy's very famous, but look at how he does the poll. See this, see this, see this. And he's trying to get me to see the idea, not the choreography, right? And then he pulls up a video of a Wing Chun Sifu. And he pulls up a video of a Wing Chun Sifu whom I know who this person is. They're not in my lineage. Uh, they're not in your lineage either. Um, I, but I didn't have a super high... Um, I mean, I didn't think that they sucked or anything like that, but I didn't really have a, an opinion of them that much because I had seen some things and it didn't really look that great. But then Maxifu showed me a video of that guy doing the long pole. And that guy's long pole form was kind of simple, but he had those like three characteristics of what constitutes right. good pole. And he says, see, see how he does this here. See how he moves it here. He goes, this guy really understands how to use the pole. And then when I saw that Maxivu could be like objective enough to kind of take a famous person from his style and be like, that guy doesn't have it. But look at this not famous guy from your style. He has it. And right. then I said, that was when I go, this is a real master. This is like, I, I, I like, I, I need to emulate this more because we can get very caught up in our Wing Chun world sometime. And, and, and that sure. was... That was maybe six years ago, and that that moment was a huge influence on my career in terms of how I look at things. And I hope that uh, listeners to the podcast and other people who practice traditional martial arts can, you know, think about that a little bit and maybe kind of change the way you assess things that don't come from your school. Try to look at it a little bit more objectively, even if it's different. It's a it's part of being an adult. It's part of being a a uh, a real practitioner of the style that you do is when you can look at something and understand the litmus test as to what makes someone good at it, regardless of their their lineage, regardless of their choreography. Right. That's you know right. that's really when you can tell you that someone that understands the, the system. You know yes. that's uh, that's. Uh, that's important. That's part. Of, it's it's important part of being a a, a kung fu master. <laughs> <laughs> Transcending the highest peak, where all styles become one in your mind. There is only good martial arts. There are no styles. <laughs> <laughs> awesome man. Uh, it was a lot of fun, brother. All right, cool. Well, we'll do it again next week, hopefully. And I hope you guys yep. enjoyed it. And uh, we'll see you soon. Be good, everybody. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. Please help us get the word out there by sharing this and other episodes on your favorite social media platforms. If you're enjoying the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast, there are many ways in which you can support it. Go to dudesofkungfu.com support to find out how you can help your favorite Kung Fu podcast. We are currently using Patreon to automate great benefits to those who support the podcast. As a supporter of the Dudes, you'll get early access to episodes as well as a number of other benefits based on your donation level. This includes in-depth topic lectures and even monthly live video conferences with the dudes. Again, go to dudesofkungfu.com support to find out more about that. As always, you can help support us in small ways as well. Give us a like at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page and share links to episodes. If Twitter is your preferred social media outlet, you can follow the Dudes of Kung Fu there as well. Both Big Sean Madigan and yours truly are on Twitter too. 
Dudes of Kung Fu is now also on Instagram, so tag it along with the hashtag Dudes of Kung Fu whenever you post something related to the podcast. A great way to support the dudes is to rate and review it on either the iTunes or Android app stores. The written reviews are immensely more helpful than just giving us a five-star rating. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, please write us at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page. Please understand that neither Sean nor I can guarantee a response, but we will consider any serious suggestions. And finally, I ask that you help spread an open dialogue with other practitioners of martial arts. Chinese Kung Fu in particular has long since suffered from caustic political discourse, which can only change with you. Remember, the person you wholeheartedly disagree with doesn't love martial arts any less than you do. Take care, and thank you for supporting the Dudes of Kung Fu!